0: This week marks one year since the first case of COVID-19 was confirmed in Colorado. On a special episode of Colorado Edition, we'll remember the early days of the pandemic.
1: There was a lot of misinformation. At that point, a lot of people were concerned that they were gonna die. So this is the end of days, for lack of a better term.
0: Plus, we'll get insight on how vaccines are prioritized for distribution. That's
2: coming up. We're in the lobby of Salud Family Health's main facility here in Fort Collins. 150 people here are getting their first dose of COVID-19 vaccine and they are extremely excited to be here. A lot of folks that I've talked to have been really isolated this past year and finally getting their first dose means they can see their family, their grandchildren, their children, their aunts and uncles, their friends. and. There's a lot of happiness. There's a lot of relief after what has been a really difficult year for a lot of people here in northern Colorado.
0: Think back to one year ago. Really, no. Take a moment. Close your eyes. Really imagine yourself back in early March of 2020.
2: All right, my eyes are closed. It's March 2020. I remember kind of a calm before the storm, but sort of unsettling news coming out of Seattle.
3: Six people have died so far, all of them in Washington state, and there are now- Coast to coast,
2: stores that were recently filled with baby wipes and toilet paper, wiped empty. And if you hadn't already stocked up on bathroom supplies, you were probably out of luck.
0: We all started getting very musical with washing our hands, for better or for worse.
2: Yeah, that's right. But a year ago, things were still pretty quiet here in Colorado.
0: At least until March 5th. That is when the first case of coronavirus in Colorado was confirmed in Summit County. Now, we didn't even have the term COVID-19 back then. And it wasn't much longer after that, before we saw the virus spreading in the larger community. For me, I don't think I fully grasped the gravity of the situation, like I mean really understood, until I got an email from the Mission Ballroom, it was in late March, letting me know that a concert I had tickets for in April was canceled. That's what really made it hit home for me. Henry, what about you?
2: Yeah, no, I remember the moment I was driving to the grocery store. It was kind of super foggy, early in the evening. And I had the national newscast on it was talking about how the virus was going between these major cities across the country and it was only a matter of time till it got to Colorado I was thinking and kind of apocalyptic but I was like it's here it's it's not going to go away.
0: And of course we are far from the only people who didn't know exactly what was in store until having that moment. We're going to start our story today with a Spanish-language radio station that found themselves in a similar spot a year ago.
2: Tigre radio stretches from Colorado Springs all the way up past the border into Wyoming. Lindsay Salazar is president of the Greeley Broadcasting Corporation, which is the group that owns Tigre. And she told us about how the station reacted when that moment of realization arrived for them.
1: There was a lot of misinformation at that point.
2: The very beginning of the pandemic was particularly frightening for northern Colorado's Spanish-speaking community.
1: A lot of people were concerned that they were going to die. So this is the end of days, for lack of a better term.
2: Gray Radio is a music station. Upbeat, lighthearted, fun. But last spring, as the pandemic was shutting down schools and businesses, a lot of their listeners weren't sure where else to turn for information.
1: A lot of people were wondering, where do I go for help? Where do I go for food?
2: Almost overnight, kids had to be ready for remote learning, and parents had questions.
1: Because I don't know anything about electronics, and now my kids are supposed to be doing stuff and people don't even know how to use it.
2: Salazar says Tigre's core audience is largely undocumented workers from Mexico, Guatemala, and other countries from Central and South America. And they started calling the station with their questions.
1: You know, you're in the middle of a a crazy something that's never happened before, and I feel like a lot of people were looking at us for resources that we couldn't provide. And I felt a little bit um, dumbfounded as to how and when do I get that information out.
2: The station started to shift its programming to meet this new community need. They had the public health department on, and they also spoke with mental health experts to help people who were struggling emotionally and had nowhere else to turn.
1: Because in, in Hispanic um, cultures, it's taboo. We don't talk about it. He's just a crazy guy. She's just a crazy lady, and we don't talk about it, and it's not something we can do anymore.
2: Salazar says she never expected her station would become a community resource, but she's not surprised that people gravitated to Tigray when they
1: were scared. It's because we are known. It's, it's comfort food. I, there's a lot of aspects about um, Hispanic culture that have to do with if they like you. So if they trust you.
2: A full year later, Tigray Radio has mostly bounced back to that original high energy upbeat music format on the air. Their website, though, is still a community hub that provides information on childcare, food and financial assistance, public health, and local schools. And Salazar is thinking differently about her station's purpose. She's planning a weekly on air segment to address ongoing listener concerns.
1: It's going to be one hour dedicated to whatever it happens to be. So I'm thinking it's gonna include education for you know, colleges right now. It's crazy, kids aren't going back to college. A lot of people are thinking they're not gonna go back to college. And then we're going back to the frustration of a lot of older kids that are acting out and how the parents can deal with that.
2: She says she wants to continue using her platform to combat misinformation that hurts the community.
1: I think the people that are are helping other people during this time, are better suited to deal with what is coming up. And who knows what will be coming. But I think if we help each other out, I think that's that
0: speaks smiles for all of us. It's certainly true that we don't know what will be coming. Now, we never do, of course. But when I think back to last March, that was a time when really there was this whole new dimension to that not knowing the future. There's so much I wish I could have understood last spring about what the year ahead was going to hold.
2: Agreed. And I have long thought about what it would be like to dial my past self and leave a message for future me here in 2021. What would you say? Please leave your message after the tone. Hey, 2020
3: Jamie. This is 2021 Jamie calling to give you some advice for the next year. You are at the beginning of a pandemic. And what you need to know is that this is going to last longer than you think. Now, there will be a lot of tragedy, but you will escape most of the physical impacts of the pandemic. It is your mental health that you will need to guard and nurture. So be kind to all. It is a divisive time with a lot of unknown and changing messages. Just keep your family and friends close. Try and understand all perspectives. Oh, and right now, go buy toilet paper, puzzles, sidewalk chalk, and a few shares of Zoom.
0: The pandemic certainly created almost unimaginable challenges for people working in healthcare. care. Last March, KUNC's Lee Patterson spoke with Dr. Jane Janab, a traveling emergency room physician. At the time, Dr. Janab hadn't seen any COVID-19 cases yet in her emergency room, but she was anticipating a grim scenario ahead, overwhelmed hospitals and exhausted medical professionals.
4: We as have- as folks on the front lines of this are being exposed time and time and time and time again. It's like sending soldiers into war without giving them ammunition or helmets.
0: Just last week, Lee reached out to Dr. Janab again, and she told Lee that she had decided to leave emergency medicine after a most difficult year. You've recently left emergency medicine, or you're in the process of leaving emergency medicine. Tell me about that decision.
4: Yeah, you caught me in the week before, uh, before the last day. So it's been a very difficult decision for me. Emergency medicine is my passion. It's the only thing I've done since graduating residency now almost 12 years ago. It's the only area of medicine um, that lights a fire in me and, and keeps me coming back. You know, taking care of a, an infant and walking out of a, the room of a nine month old and walking into the room of a 90 year old whose hand I hold while, while they pass away. It's a, it's a beautiful, broad, um, constantly changing, constantly interesting area of medicine, and I love it. But this past year has brought me to the brink um, physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually. I have hit a wall. Traveling for work is incredibly exhausting, but in the middle of a pandemic where you are literally risking your life every time you get on an airplane and and fly down, then you go to a job where you're risking your life every day going in and caring for patients. And instead of your employer um, thanking you for for the sacrifices that you're making, what's happened in emergency medicine in particular is we have seen both our hours be cut our pay be cut. And most recently my travel expenses were cut and it just got to the point where I realized it's simply not worth it. I'm, I'm killing myself. My, my mental health and my physical health has declined in the past year. And that's, that's due to stress. It's due to overwhelming stress and I'm not the only one.
0: Um, just two more questions and then we'll wrap up describe to me, um, some of the positives, some of the bright spots that have emerged in your world over the past year.
4: Hmm. Boy, Lee, I wish I could. Um, I'm really fine, I'm really struggling to find some bright spots. I will, I will say, you know, one of the hardest things for us in, in the medical world is the dichotomy between what we see at work and what we see when we step out of the hospital. And by that, I mean, we're caring for patients who are gasping for air, who are, who are dying from COVID. And we walk out and we see on the news or in our own communities, people not wearing masks or people gathering in, in huge crowds. And we know that that's going to translate into to more sickness and more death that we're going to have to deal with. But there are some communities, there are, some, there are a lot of people out there, and we have to remind ourselves of this, there are a lot of people out there who do understand, who are doing the, the tough thing by staying home or wearing masks or social distancing or not seeing their families no matter how much they want to be with them. And we thank those people. We profoundly thank those people.
0: How hopeful are you or how likely do you think it is that the vaccine will allow life to go back to some approximation of normal by say fall. I don't think
4: we're gonna see uh, any type of new normal. Um, I'd be surprised if it was seen before next next spring or summer. Um, I hope it's gonna be sooner than that. Um, but my concern is that this virus is unlike any virus we've ever dealt with in the past. And it keeps surprising us. We still don't understand it. We still don't know how it does what it does to the human body. I am hopeful. I am grateful I cried when I got my own vac- vaccination out of sure re- relief um, having, having survived when I really wasn't sure I was going to during this past year. And I'm cautiously optimistic about what things will look like within the next year. You're listening to a
2: special episode of KUNC's Colorado edition, marking one year of COVID-19 in the state. We'll be right back.
5: Please leave your message after the tone. Oh, 2020,
3: Stacey. I do not envy you. Um, This year is going to be really, really tough um, and sad and confusing weird. Um, (laughs) If I tried to tell you all the things that are going to happen this year, you would not believe me. You're just going to have to experience it for yourself. But I'll give you just a little bit of a preview. Uh, At some point this year, this is going to be you in your backyard. Emma, what are we going to do? Howl. We're going to howl. Is it because we've been home for a while? Yeah. Yeah? Are we tired of being stuck in the house? Yeah. 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 You want to go outside and play with your friends, huh?
2: Yeah. Okay, let's howl. Welcome back. This is a special episode of KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
0: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Grief has become somewhat of a daily fixture in life throughout the pandemic. People have lost loved ones, jobs, and homes— But many of us are also grieving the smaller things, the loss of a sense of safety or normalcy and routine. Medical professionals have also had to adjust how they care for grieving patients and families. Dr. Heather Coates is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado College of Nursing and the director of research for the Hospice and Palliative Care Nurses Association. Dr. Coates, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you. For those who are not familiar, what is palliative care?
3: You know, I think for us, thinking about palliative care is not an either or. And if you could imagine with me a circle that has the words palliative care in it. And inside that circle is a little circle that's called hospice. So palliative care really is that delivery across the continuum Specifically in acute care settings where most of you know the very critically ill COVID patients have been. It's by a specialistly trained palliative care interprofessional team made up of social workers, nurses, doctors, and you know, the spiritual care
0: providers. How do COVID patients and their families use palliative care? The healthcare teams that are caring for them do what we call consults
3: when someone is progressing along. You know, it's really a crisis because patients and families and their decisions, so their beliefs, their values, their preferences are very important when making these decisions. And so we are called in to help. I think the struggle is that before we were able to have these great conversations, bring in family members, friends, loved ones into that space. And because of infection control policies and procedures, you know, we've had to be able to do that behind screens. And it's been hard even for us in the palliative care field to try to think about the adaptations of how we can still meet the person-centered directed care and get that information about who the patient is, not just how the patient is. That's the medical things that are going on with their illness.
0: Yeah. uh, You know, because the virus is, of course, so contagious, we've heard so much about families being unable to say goodbye in person to family members. We've heard about medical workers holding iPads for patients to say goodbye virtually in their final moments. How does this impact a family's grieving process?
3: It's something we're all learning together, To try to think about, you know, there are rituals. We've had cultures have different rituals around death. And it's really upended that. When we are more safe and all people are vaccinated, we need to continue to think about how we can memorialize, provide space for that grief. What I would say to everyone is, you know, loss is loss. Name what those losses are. Be present with those losses. And then figure out what supports you can engage right now, but how can you adapt those? I tell my patients and families, what's helped you in past times when life has been hard? I don't give them something to do. They tell me, well, I did this. And that helped me at that difficult time. I say, well, then you really need to lean in to help you move forward. And I think President Biden is an expert example of having lived with grief. And he talks about through the grief, we can be stronger on the other side. And there literally is post-traumatic stress disorder, but we also can have post-traumatic growth.
0: I think that's really powerful. I want to come back to something we mentioned earlier, and that is that this year has been full of all different kinds of grief. And sometimes I think people feel guilty because it's just something small. So what would you say to that? I mean, it sounds like just acknowledging that this is a normal way to feel.
3: Grief is grief, and the list is long, but it all has to be processed. So naming it, talking about it with others and being sensitive, you know, there is loss of home, loss of job, loss of personhood, be sensitive to those people who may have what we consider bigger losses, but loss is loss and and grief comes from all of that loss. And the loss is now part of who we all are, but is it going to stay and have you stagnant and have what we call post-traumatic stress disorders, or are we gonna have post-traumatic growth moving through this so we can all find the new us?
0: Dr. Heather Coates is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado College of Nursing and the director of research for the Hospice and Palliative Care Nurses Association. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. A year into the pandemic, we are now in the midst of the vaccine rollout. It's one of the largest mass vaccination efforts in our history. And a lot of us still have questions not only about where our place in the line is, but how the line was even determined.
2: And long before the vaccine was developed and tested in clinical trials, it was pretty clear that demand would far outweigh the initial supply. That's why, late in summer of 2020, a committee was formed at the request of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Institutes of Health to create a framework to help prioritize the most ethical and equitable way to distribute doses
0: once a vaccine was approved. The report, which was released October 2nd, recommended a four-phase approach to vaccinating people based on their level of risk. The framework became a sort of blueprint for countries and states to develop their own distribution plans. To get some insight into that process, we spoke with one of those committee members. Dr. Saad Omer is an infectious disease epidemiologist and the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health.
5: The fact that we would need to prioritize wasn't a surprise for those of us who have been working in the field. We knew that there was going to be initially... Limited doses available. And so uh, the country as a whole and each jurisdiction will have to have some way of figuring out who gets it first, second, third, et cetera.
0: And of course, what was of paramount importance is taking into account different health disparities, but also um, income level and things like that. I'm wondering how those discussions began. How did you decide the ethical principles that would become the foundation of this framework?
5: What we did was uh, initially started with what principles would be used. So rather than saying who would be um, allocated the vaccine uh, initially and, and and in what sequence, uh, we said what principles uh, would be used. And, and there was bias ethics, uh, ethics expertise within the committee and then outlined those, uh, explicated those, then figured out, Uh, As a group, what criteria will be used uh, to, say, prioritize keeping these principles in mind? And then uh, got to what public health strategy it will translate to.
0: So kind of starting with the ethics as a a foundation for it, has that been done before for a max vaccination campaign?
5: Yeah, there has been literature on ethics of uh, allocation uh, when there are limited supplies, et cetera. Having said that, the magnitude is different. the speed is different. Uh, and And the implications are are somewhat different because everyone is impacted and 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 so on and so forth.
0: Everyone is impacted. But one of the lessons we learned over the course of last year is that not everyone is impacted equally.
5: One of the things that that I n- never liked since the beginning of this pandemic was this expression, that the virus doesn't discriminate. It absolutely discriminates in its impact, in its prevalence, et cetera. It discriminates based on you know your risk factor uh, of uh, coming into contact with people. It discriminates based on where you live uh, and your sociodemographic, and in a lot of situations, racial background uh, because of inequities in your health system, et cetera. It, it discriminates based on your urban rural background, whether or not you're able to access an ER quickly,
0: so that question of how to mitigate that inequity became one of the main considerations for the committee.
5: We said that the access to the vaccine should be ensured that it is equal by what we call the social vulnerability index. It's an index that, is, that was developed by CDC for disasters, including pandemics, that has 15 variables, And within those 15 variables, it includes a lot of what we call social determinants of health that are important for this pandemic, includes proportion elderly. It includes access to transportation. It includes uh, proportion minorities. It has income as part of it. It's a comprehensive index that doesn't have one or two, but but 15 variables that as a whole uh, put uh, a location in this zone of social vulnerability, we said in each of these stages, ensure uh, that the vaccine is available to to folks specifically in, in high social vulnerability areas, and they are not left behind.
0: Right. And for people who just maybe have questions about the vaccine rollout where they live, what would you want people to know about what went into this process?
5: Well, it, it was a process that had substantial input uh, from uh, external entities so there were we shared a draft there were open meetings where people provided feedback in and anyone could provide feedback in in writing and verbally one thing people should remember that unfortunately when there is limited supply of vaccine available no matter how you distribute it no matter how fairly you distribute it somebody is not going to get the vaccine in the first go and, and so that's the unfortunate nature of early phases of vaccine production, especially in in, in in a pandemic situation. Although as a vaccine scientist, I do think that we could have had policy strategies that increases that size of the pie, that we could have ensured that we had more doses. But nevertheless, you could would have still needed some level of prioritization.
0: Dr. Saad Omer is an infectious disease epidemiologist and the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health Dr. Omer, thank you so much for your time.
5: My pleasure.
2: That's going to do it for today's show. Thank you for joining us for this special look back at a year of coronavirus in Colorado. We got a ton of help for this episode, including from our production team, Tess Novotny and Alana Schreiber, and from people in the KUNC newsroom, including Lee Patterson, Stacey Nick, Adam Reyes, Jackie High, Matt Bloom, and Jamie Wood.
0: Ray Solomon produced today's special episode. Brian Larson is our executive producer. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry
2: Zimmerman. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. So you got the shot just now. How do you feel?
4: I
3: feel fabulous.
4: I am so glad. You didn't feel a thing, and it was just fabulous.